Welcome to the Hemon Pulse, the podcast that is dedicated to everything hematology, 100% hematology. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. You may have heard me on my own podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. This is a new podcast, the Hemon Pulse, dedicated to hematology, sponsored by Blood Cancers Today on behalf of Soho as well. I appreciate you tuning in. And today we are going to actually have a podcast pertaining to a paper that was published on blood, in blood, the major hematology journal, looking at the cost effectiveness of the polatuzumab plus our chip versus our chop. This was the Polarix trial that was presented last year, which showed that adding polatuzumab improved progression-free survival in patients with diffused large B-cell lymphoma receiving treatment in the front line when compared with RCHOP. There was no overall survival benefit. The regimen currently is not yet approved by the FDA, but the paper was a paper that was, that was looking at cost effectiveness of this program compared to RCHOP. This was a paper and an investigation that was not sponsored by any manufacturer or any pharmaceutical company, but the investigators sought to look at the cost effectiveness of this program. So at the Hemonc Pulse, we invited the first author and the senior author of this paper to discuss the findings and to tell us more about the methodology and the implication of these findings on patients with diffused large B-cell lymphoma and potentially on policymakers. So I came across a very intriguing paper that was published in the most prestigious uh, hematology journal, Blood, that explored the cost effectiveness of a new regimen in uh, patients with a diffused large B-cell lymphoma uh, compared to the uh, emperor of DLBCL, which is the R-CHOP. So with that, I have the first author of this paper, Dr. Sweta Kamba-Pati, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, yes, I did that correct. And you can introduce <laughs> yourself and the senior author, Dr. Nikhil, Nikhil Thiruvengadam. Yes. So tell a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about you, um, what you do, where you work, and um, just how you spend your day. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us, first of all. And I'm an assistant professor at City of Hope in the Lymphoma Division. I just recently started as faculty uh, in October. Um, I completed my hematology oncology fellowship at UCSF and then did an advanced fellowship focusing on lymphoma at City of Hope and then uh, I joined the faculty. And so I focus on, uh, you know, clinical. I'm a clinical investigator. I, do, I lead several clinical trials and I'm also very interested in developing investigator initiated trials looking at novel combinations of therapies in, um, in lymphoma. I specifically focus on a variety of lymphomas, but trying to develop a niche in follicular lymphoma. Um, but something that I recently got interested in was cost effectiveness. And this is an area that I'm uh, continuing to develop in and uh, uh, and uh, doing a variety of projects and it's an interest that I have. And this is a, one of my first projects looking at cost effectiveness of a novel therapy in lymphoma. So really excited to, talk, to share with the audience today. And your first project gets into blood. Not not a bad <laughs> not a bad start. Uh, I had some good mentorship and guidance. <laughs> yeah. Nikhil, tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Um, so I'm not a hematologist. Um, I'm a gastroenterologist and therapeutic endoscopist who primarily focuses clinically on pancreatic endoscopy, but from a research perspective, really focuses on microsimulation modeling and 
kind of understanding different screening and surveillance strategies and their impact on both cancer incidence and um, cost effectiveness. And so this was just a collaboration, primarily for the methodology part of it, um, to model a regimen that was novel and potentially clinically um, would change the primary regimen used to treat DLBCL. Nikhil, what got you into interest in cost effectiveness? Like, what's uh, it's it's a it's it's an important, uh, obviously, career path. But what got you interested in that? I think the main thing was on on the GI side. We don't have many clinical trials, um, so a lot of our data, based on even, for example, colon cancer screening, is trying to understand how an intervention will impact a population fifty years down the line. So I, I trained at the University of Pennsylvania, and I actually had a mentor, Monica Samoy, who trained in cost effectiveness and is also a therapeutic endoscopist. So she was primarily the person who got me interested into this. And we started doing some work together to try to model different endoscopic both treatment and screening strategies and try to understand their impact, which is probably as important as the cost effectiveness piece of it, because um, in especially for procedural aspects, we don't understand cost as well. But we at least want to try to understand how do, will it impact patients when applied in a widespread fashion. Sweta, what got you interested into the economics and the cost effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, I think for for me, I, this was something that was a very a unique niche and uh, not an area that many hematologists have done work in. And, and while I still continue to work on trials and I'm still interested in being a clinical investigator, this is an area that I think is a very untapped area in hematology. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, that, that's kind of sparked my interest. And one of the big questions with this landmark trial was, you know, uh, this is one of the first uh, agents that's really maybe practiced change. There have been many attempts at improving ARCHA, but polituzumab uh, combined with um, chemoimmunotherapy was improving PFS. But a big question that came up last year was cost. It's one thing that everyone was kind of talking about. You know, it's uh, not improving overall survival. It's much more expensive. Is it really, um, is it worth it? So this was an area that, you know, not many people have sort of done work in. So, in, uh, and I think this has become an increasingly important question, even in hematology. We have a lot of new therapies, um, a lot of novel agents that may improve PFS, but not overall survival, but are more expensive. So I think this is a very important question that's going to come up in variety of uh, subtypes of lymphoma and an untapped area. So that's kind of something that sparked my interest in looking at this further. So this is an idea that you came up with. It was not sponsored by a pharmaceutical company or a manufacturer. This is, you know, you sat down. So set the stage to listeners. Set the stage to listeners by describing the trial maybe uh, briefly, we, we don't want to really go into so much detail because the focus is not the study, but to set the stage, tell listeners about the study. Sure. Yeah. So the the, the Polaric study is a, a landmark uh, randomized phase three double-blinded uh, placebo-controlled study where we're comparing polatuzumab combined, combined with chemotherapy versus standard of care RCHOP and treatment-naive DLBCL. So polatuzumab-vidotin is a CD79B antibody drug conjugate, as we all know, and it, um, and it was initially approved in the relapse setting in com combination with BR. And this study is really looking at it in uh, combined with chemotherapy in the frontline 
setting. And the study crux is that it demonstrated an improvement in PFS of about 6.5% um, compared to our CHOP at a two-year follow-up, uh, but no improve, uh, no really uh, improvement in overall survival at this short follow-up, but safety was very comparable. But one of the big questions that comes up is polar chip costs about 209,000 compared to our CHOP, which is about 79,000. So definitely much more expensive. And with about 30,000 new cases of DLB sale every year, this incorporating this into the standard practice would lead to significant increase in healthcare expenditures. So our the study we designed was really to look at based on the polar study outcomes and safety and and sort of um, and the and the um, uh, uh, outcomes we saw in trial is uh, if if that were to translate into real world practice and and uh, modeling uh, different outcomes in the five year follow because we don't know that at this time would polar chips still remain cost effective and what are the thresholds needed for it to be remaining cost effective at a longer follow-up. There are folks who might argue that we don't need this exercise period because there's no survival benefit. But I think you bring up a good point. There is a progression-free survival benefit and some folks might change their practice based on a PFS benefit. So your question is very relevant that is it really cost effective? So Nikhil, when you wanna try to tackle this, you have regimen A versus regimen B and you wanna to try to look at cost effectiveness, tell me what goes through your mind. How do you start designing the model to, to address the question at hand? That's a great question. Basically, you kind of have two strategies for approaching this. One is designing a model that tries to mimic a clinical trial, which is essentially what we did here, where we're calibrating a model to reflect patients in a clinical trial. That's one based one strategy for approaching this. The other would be a model that aims to reproduce a population. If we had population-based characteristics or, for example, SEER data, we could pretend to create a model to reproduce lymphoma, but that may not reproduce a trial population or necessarily this therapy, these therapies. In terms of which model to choose, historically for oncology, partition survival models were created, and these are very simple models. You have three health states, alive, progressed, or dead but they aren't able to incorporate a lot of the nuances that we see, particularly in lymphoma, but a lot of oncology health states where it's not ent entirely being in complete remission, it's whether you're in complete remission in the first line, second line, third line, and you transition between multiple therapies at different lines. So to allow for that complexity, we chose a Markov model. And what a Markov model is, is a state transition model where basically every cycle, the patient has to transition to one of a set number of health states. And the health states they, trans they transition to don't depend on prior health states. So there's no sense of memory, meaning that every cycle they start over new and they don't have a memory of where they've been. But what a Markov and state transition model allows for is it allows to create very complex health states. So we could create as many health states as we want. We could create complete remission after our job, complete remission after polar R-chip, complete remission after CAR-T, and incorporate some of these nuances to try to simulate um, as close to what we see in clinical practice. It also allows us to calibrate each part of the model using published survival curves. So we can basically have the model reproduce a trial population and use that to at least simulate their outcomes and then follow the outcomes out longer over a lifetime horizon and understand what happens. Nikhil, is this uh, like a, a, a software that you put in the numbers in and you, like you put input and numbers and then you get an output on the computer or like, or you keep, like how does this practically, like how does it happen? 
That's a great question. The software we use was called TreeAge Pro. Um, and what it is, is it allows you to build this kind of graphically at first and assign different values at different points. And just like you said, you have a, a set of variables for inputs. Um, and then it does sort of the calculations for the Markov model. Alternatively, you can use this, do this with more of a pure programming approach with things like R or even um, C++, but we use it via TreeH Pro, which is really the dominant software for this that makes it the easiest to do this. And then, Nikhil, again, staying with you a little bit, um, as part of this model, you need to assign a dollar value to the incremental you know, year uh, lived if you take that regimen. And I think your, and that's what we call the quality, right? Well, do you want to clarify quality? Because your quality in this paper was $150,000. Yeah. And uh, there are folks who would say that's a lot. Some people say it's 50,000. I mean, there were some reports back in the day were 50,000 and some folks say that's too little. How do you come up with a quality number uh, to start with? Yeah, and that's a great question. So I get, I think what you're getting at is what is our willingness to pay threshold or how right. much as a society are we willing to pay for one year of perfect life, which is what the quality just life your quality is supposed to represent. The concept first started in, in the 1950s and 60s when we basically looked at an intervention that everyone agreed was worth paying for, and that was hemodialysis. And that cost about $50,000 per quality. So that was an initial threshold that was used. Over time, the threshold increased to about $100,000 per quality, and that tends to be a relatively standard threshold. But more recently, the World Health Organization recommended a, a willingness to pay threshold of two to three times GDP, um, which if you use three times GDP is roughly $150,000 per quality in the United States, which is roughly what we used. But you're absolutely right in that there's no, um, there's no set number in the United States. In um, other countries, for example, the United Kingdom, they do set a, a willingness to pay threshold that the payer is willing to pay for. But the challenge with the United States and the challenge with any modeling exercise, there's so many different payers. Each payer may have an individual threshold or each society may have an individual threshold that, that we may not know. So we kind of stuck with the general guidance from the WHO for a willingness to pay threshold of three times GDP. But but, 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 but that number is critical to decide on the uh, results of the study of the cost effective, because in other words, if you say the willingness to pay the, or the WTP is 200,000, the entire mathematical model will be completely different, no? It it will in a sense, but part, for that reason, we actually do, do different sensitive analyses. Like, for example, we did one where we vary the cost of polar chip, and then we display different willingness to pay thresholds. We tell you what it needs to cost to be 50,000, 100,000, 150,000. We didn't really use 200,000 because that's really not been used as 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 yet. Uh, a lot of people would say 150,000 is a relatively generous or a liberal uh, threshold. So I think 100 to 150,000 is a very typical threshold that's used in all these analyses. But you're absolutely right that we don't know what that what that number is. And that's why rather than giving sort of a yes, no answer, which is what people want, right? They want to know, should I pay for polar chip? These modeling exercises give you a sense of under what scenarios could polar chip be cost effective. And that's what we set out to do because it is not possible to say yes or no is polar chip cost effective or any drug because it depends on so many variables for each individual payer, for each individual patient that we may not have. For example, the willingness to pay threshold is what society is willing to pay. But say if 
part of that cost is deferred to the patient due to a deductible or copay. A p- individual patient's willingness to pay threshold may be much lower. They may say, I can't pay more than a $2,000 for willingness to, per, for one year, you know, and that's, this is where these exercises can't model all of that, but it just provides a general guidance as a society, what scenarios would this be cost-effective if we, if we were to pay for it? So Sweta, you know, as a medical oncologist myself, I this is like there's a learning curve to understand all of these methodologies um, because it doesn't always come intuitive, and I and I understand you're really um, focusing on this. What was what, what did you find out when you applied this? What were the results of the uh, of your investigation? As was mentioned, so we we set out to sort of see, you know, at what different thresholds is polar chip cost effective in terms of the cost of the drugs as well as outcomes. So the results, we found that, you know, if the two-year outcomes really continue in the five, like in, in terms of long-term follow-up, in terms of uh, the safety and the efficacy profile of polar chip, um, then polar chip would be cost effective um, at its current cost. Um, but we did a variety of one-way and two-way sensitive analysis. And in our paper, we'd kind of describe what are the best case and worst case scenarios. Let's say polar chip simply delays relapse and we see a higher rate of relapse after the two-year follow-up, then it would no longer be cost-effective. And we kind of had different um, sort of thresholds and, and in terms of what PFS we need to see at the five-year follow-up, um, you know, uh, at a minimum for it to remain cost-effective. And the other thing is we, the key um, thing that we demonstrate in our paper, I'd say, is that the um the the out the cost effectiveness of polar chip really is um depends on it, it relies on the downstream costs of therapy. So when we were actually doing the analysis of the paper, um the uh, the axis cell had just been sort of FDA approved. When we were initially actually modeling, it was not yet approved. So we kind of modeled two different um uh, sort of markup models in our in our uh, uh in our paper, where one is we're looking at third line CAR T, and then second is we model when CAR T is used a second line for primary refractory early relapse patients and then transplant salvage, the standard historical standard is used for late relapse patients, which is now kind of becoming the paradigm in DLBCL practice. And so we show that really the um, cost effectiveness of polar chip significantly goes up when CAR-T is used in a second line setting because the idea is that polar chip is delaying um, the number of patients who require downstream therapies. And if CAR-T is used as the next line of therapy, CAR-T is extremely expensive. And so, um, so we kind of demonstrate that really the, the cost effectiveness of polar chip depends on the outcomes of polar chip, if they remain the same at five-year follow-up, the cost of polar chip, as well as the cost of CAR-T and whether CAR-T is being used in the second line or third line setting. So just to, to better understand this, so A, you're a, if, if the outcome of uh, polar chip sustain, which is no survival benefit, but the 6.5% progression-free survival advantage sustains at five years. And if the patient undergoes stem cell transplant in relapse disease, as opposed to CAR-T, then the regimen is cost-effective. But if the patient undergoes CAR-T as a second line, the regimen becomes not cost-effective? No, actually, so we are saying it's cost effective in both models as long as the PFS benefit, you know, continues in the five year follow up at the current, you know, at the costs, uh, the current costs. But if CAR T is used in the second line 
setting, I believe our ICER was, um, I have to pull it up, but our, it becomes even more cost effective in the second line setting when CAR-T is being used as opposed to third line setting. So because the, the downstream costs are even higher, and if we're using the second line setting, it, it increases the cost effectiveness of polar chip in the front line setting because it's delaying the number of patients who need that second line therapy. Makes sense. N Nikhil, the, so right now we have a 6.5% progression-free survival benefit. Let's say the benefit sustains, but it's not 6.5%. So five-year follow-up, it's 5% benefit on PFS. So there is a benefit, but it went down a little bit. How would that factor in the model? Yeah, so I think a couple things about that. One is that if there really was no overall survival, meaning that getting all these downstream therapies had no impact on mortality whatsoever. I think that's certainly a, a different scenario um, than if the the PFS remains different and the, uh, the and the model projects that over time that PFS does lead to some differences in mortality because of the toxicity of transplant or even increased mortality with relapse, et cetera. I think that's one point. In terms of that modeling exercise, we actually did that with a two-way sensitivity analysis where we said, at five years, what if depending on these different PFSs with our chop, how much higher does polar R chip have to be? And it was around 4.5% um, of how much higher the PFS of polar R chip had to be. But some of that did account for the fact that the survival did start to become different at that point because we'd modeled CAR T using you know CAR T trials and we modeled stem cell transplant from. Um, those trials as well. And those trials do show a difference in mortality in terms of when patients received CAR-T, they do have uh, a different mortality than patients didn't relapse at all. So I think from a modeling perspective, if, as long as it's around 4.55%, it's not a completely precise number because it depends on what the RCHOP arm is doing as well. Like if their, if their PFS remains relatively stable, it's around 4.5% um, would be kind of the difference needed for it to be cost-effective. Do, do you factor imaging studies cost, uh, Sweta, in terms of when you do these models, do you say, because sometimes in the real world, imaging is used differently than clinical trials? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So obviously, you know, that's why cost effectiveness um, really depends a lot on the inputs that go in and assumptions that are made. So there can be differences in in, in models between uh, you know different modeling. But we in our study, we basically inputted um, a variety of things. We input the cost of the drugs, the hospital administration costs, as well as patients who achieve remission. Sort of what are the follow up costs? Patients who relapse, um, sort of including like imaging surveillance and those. Uh, costs and utilities in different health states were all obtained from sort of published literature and prior cost effectiveness analysis in in this in this space in this in DLBCL. So but there can be differences in way people practice and the you know the amount of surveillance imaging people do. Um, and uh, and so it's hard to account for all of that, but we kind of use sort of standard uh, sort of practice and, and standard published literature um, uh, utilities and costs for these uh, to model. Nikhil, there are many uh, skeptics on cost effectiveness studies and, and many folks that would say it all depends on the numbers that you put in. You can, you're like an accountant. You can always massage the data and massage the number to make it look good. Uh, what do you say to those? 
I, I mean, I agree in the sense that it definitely depends on the inputs. I think people focus a lot on the cost inputs, and that's honestly less important than the efficacy inputs. You know, if we if we made Polar Chip at five years, ten you know ten percent more uh, PFS better than our chop, we could increase the cost astronomically, um, and it still be cost effective. So the way I, I like to think about it is we're just giving presenting scenarios to clinicians where it could be cost effective. So it's very possible if, say, you're the center and the cost of polar chip is $700,000, we have a graph that has a one-way sensor that says if it's above you know, 280000 it's no longer cost-effective. You can write then say, okay, it's unlikely to be cost-effective in this setting. Compared to another pair, maybe um, a pair that has kind of multiple sites or had some ability to negotiate, their cost is around 150000 They may then say, okay, it's even more cost-effective and it makes sense to use it. But I think if if you focus on the yes, no part of it, yes, that can be seen the case that oh, they're trying to prove something or not prove something. But we're, what the goal of these analyses is just to provide scenarios and guides for when it could be cost effective. Um, so the, uh, completely acknowledging there are many, many scenarios where it's not cost effective. Um, it could be payers, it could be patients. You know, th These are trial patients. These are the healthiest patients going in. If you have a patient who's much less healthy, you know, they may not live 10 years. You know, if they live two years, this is not cost effective. You know, these these kinds of things are all important to note that we're just providing guidance. But when you have the these individual patients, these are where these decisions have to be made. Well, congratulations on the paper. This is really a great work done. Um, I, I found it intriguing and I appreciate you spending some time with me today discussing the findings, the methodology, and the paper. Anything else, Weta, that I may should have asked you that I did not ask you pertaining to the paper you would like to uh, share with listeners? Um, no, I think we covered the key aspects of the paper. I think um, I think we, the, the, as, as uh, you know, Dr. Dirwin just uh, mentioned, I think that we really, there, you know, the things to kind of remember is that this is, you know, the the, the modeling provides sort of framework and, and guidance into sort of thresholds at which polar chip would be cost effective. But as we, you know, as it's get anticipated FDA approval in the United States and it's being incorporated into practice, it'll be important to see what the real world outcomes are, what are the real world safety and then do repeat the cost effectiveness with these new inputs to kind of see. But with our paper, we kind of demonstrate sort of what are the long-term outcomes that we do need to see and what are the costs that we allow for in order for it to remain cost effective. But I think it'd be real, it'll be really interesting to see as this regimen potentially becomes more widespreadly used in clinical practice, what are the sort of real world outcomes in terms of safety and efficacy and how that impacts the cost effectiveness. Anything I forgot, Nikhil, you would like to share with listeners? No, I think we covered all of it. Um, thank you so much for having me and having us. Yeah, well, thank you. thank you so much for spending some time with me today, uh, Doctors Sweta Kambampati and Nikhil Thiruvengadam. Thank you so much for spending time on the Himan Pulse. Thank you.